Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground Questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. And for a six to seven week season, we are going to address questions of biblical sexuality by exploring the 12 statements that were established by the PCA's Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. This report was overwhelmingly received at the 2021 General Assembly. And these 12 statements affirm clear biblical doctrine and promote pastoral considerations and care. In other words, both truth and love are incorporated into each of the solid and helpful statements. So this will take place of our confession episode for a season, and we'll return to that after we complete the study of these 12 statements. The report on human sexuality has a preamble as it begins, and it is very helpful And we'll be having the report uh, link in the show notes so that you can link to that and follow along or read at your own leisure. But this report addressed both the pastoral and apologetic or doctrinal task because that was the task given to this committee from the General Assembly. These two tasks must not be pitted against each other, although they sadly often seem to be and Quite frankly, when we pit the pastoral versus the doctrinal, it is often largely out of fear. As Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung noted in their video before the General Assembly, we all come to this conversation with a set of fears. One set of fears is that we will be harsh and unfeeling toward people who have been wounded and deeply hurt and often by the church. Another set of fears, however, is that we will compromise at the very place where the world is attacking the church in our culture. In pastoral care, we must not apply the truth so harshly as to be callously alienating or so indirectly that the truth is never really grasped. Often those that are so afraid of compromise, they drift into a form of legalism, while those who are afraid of hurting the pastoral task can drift into a form of antinomianism or licentiousness. At the beginning of the report, there are 12 excellent foundational statements concerning a biblical and confessional view of human sexuality, and what is absolutely wonderful and beautiful about these 12 statements is they both maintain biblical doctrine and pastoral concerns, and for that I am exceedingly grateful. And so statement one is on marriage. I'm going to read the statement and then highlight some things. Statement one, marriage. We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife for procreation and the raising together of godly children and to prevent sexual immorality. Marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. All other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful. Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires, nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. We all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not an unpardonable sin. There is no sin so small it does not deserve damnation, and no sin so big it cannot be forgiven. There is hope and forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. First, in this statement, the divine ordinance of marriage is affirmed. 
We affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman, that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. I hope we all realize this incredible fact, that there is unified agreement across our denomination on this statement, and that is an enormous thing in this day and time. We should rejoice over this. Denominations are fracturing and drifting over the denial or the compromise of this very basic but fundamental biblical assertion. I was asked recently by an adult, who created marriage? Who came up with it? It's a great question. And we need in our day to not ever assume or fail to repeat the divine ordinance of marriage from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It reads, as Moses writes, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's the ordinance. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Jesus himself would go on to affirm Moses' account of the divine ordinance of marriage. He was asked about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 6, and his answer began with this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, and then he repeats the ordinance of marriage from Genesis chapter 2. Now, Please understand, as we consider a divine ordinance called marriage, that it does not mean that it is sinful to be unmarried. 1 Corinthians 7 makes clear that singleness may be a divine calling for a time or for life. As Paul, speaking of singleness there, writes, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is, meaning unmarried. So while it's an ordinance, it's not a requirement. There is the gift of singleness that God gives. So the statement is wonderful, statement one, because it establishes the divine ordinance. But it also shows that marriage has a clear divine purpose. It says marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife, for procreation and the raising together of godly children and to prevent sexual immorality. The purpose first of mutuality for husband and wife, this purpose of oneness of heart and help for one another, the, the reality of the Lord God saying, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. The mutual help and blessing to both the man, a husband and the wife is God's purpose that they are given for one another to help one another. And just as the Trinity enjoys relationship and fellowship and perfect mutuality, 
Marriage gives us as image bearers a taste of Trinitarian love and mutuality. And so one of the purposes of marriage is this mutual help and blessing. But then when you consider God-ordained sex in marriage, it serves several purposes. First, the purpose of procreation. Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Fundamental to our call as humans and the kingdom mission is to multiply. God ordained sex in marriage serves the purpose of procreation. Covenantal marriage gives the possibility of new life. And thus, that is at the essence of marriage. It doesn't mean that every marriage will be able necessarily to give new life. That is a sadness when people face that. We often find that in Scripture where barrenness is a sorrow. But one of the purposes of marriage God gave is procreation. Another purpose that the statement mentions is prevention. God-ordained sex in marriage serves the purpose of prevention. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, and verse 9, But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. But if they cannot exercise self-control, later he goes on speaking of the single person, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So there's, as the writers of the statement mentioned, there's a preventative measure to God-ordained marriage. However, please do not hear that marriage is to prevent sexual immorality as some statement of once you're married, there begins you have to express sex at all costs if you're to prevent sexual immorality. That's called actually sexual entitlement, and that's not what we mean there. But there is a nature where you in marriage have a relationship where you can express sexual intimacy as God alone only intends. And that's what we mean by that. God-ordained sex in marriage also serves the purpose of expressed oneness. So there's mutuality, procreation, prevention of immorality, and then expressed oneness. You see, sex is good. It was created by God for our joy and his glory. Now, sadly, the church has communicated too often this message. Sex is dirty, disgusting, and vile, so save it for someone you love. That's not the biblical message of sex. That message does violence to the beauty and holiness of sex as God created it. Sex is about expressed oneness. Thus, it must only be celebrated after covenant oneness is promised and expressed before God and man between a male and a female. Sex does not create love. It expresses covenant love. It is a physical manifestation of promised oneness. And that's a gift in the marriage relationship. And so as marriage is divinely ordained and has a divine purpose, the statement makes clear that it also serves as God's clear and intentional picture of his intent and ways. The statement says marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. Christ's relationship to the church provides the picture of mutual 
help and service and submission that ought to characterize marriage. Really important to note that phrase, differentiated relationship. A God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. The sexual differentiation is what qualifies human beings to carry out the fundamental task of mankind, the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. And it is to be a picture of Christ and the church. Our relationship with God is both covenantal and differentiated. Understand this. It's differentiated in that our union brings together the divine and the human. Thus, marriage pictures our relationship with God. It must be differentiated and covenantal, thus male and female, according to the divine ordinance of God. In Ephesians 5, 21 through 25, the differentiation between man and woman is crucial to the meaning of marriage. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, stay with me. The man represents Christ. The woman, the wife, represents the church. This differentiation is important. The church must never be confused with Christ. And with homosexuality, there is no such differentiation. There is no such distinction. Symbolically, what occurs is in a same-sex marriage is that it suggests that God and man are interchangeable. And that notion is not only wrong, but it's the root of every sin, the deadly exchange of the, of the creator for the creature. Thus, it's a grave and severe defacing of the divine picture of covenant marriage to remove the important aspect of differentiation. The differentiation in marriage is picturing the differentiation of the union between God and humans. Now, sadly, because of original sin, as we'll speak next time, there are human distortions and deviations from God's design, as I just mentioned with homosexuality and its elimination of differentiation to the divine ordered picture. The statement says all other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful. Now, this is a simple reality based on God's ordinance, purpose, and picture of marriage. Here it is. Any kind of sexual behavior outside of male and female marriage is not blessed by God. Any kind. Same-sex, heterosexual. Any same-sex, heterosexual behavior outside of male and female marriage is sinful. In Matthew 15, 19 through 20, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That's what defiles a person. The word he uses for sexual immorality is porneia. We get our word pornography from that. But it really, that word porneia means all sexual behavior outside of marriage is sin. Sex is a gift exclusively for covenant marriage. Some would say that Jesus never mentions homosexuality. However, listen, 
In Matthew 15, Jesus speaks about all sexual sin outside of covenant marriage with that word, porneia. And then in chapter 19, as we heard earlier, he defines marriage according to Moses. Therefore, clearly Jesus calls any sin, calls sin, any sexual behavior outside of covenant marriage as defined by Moses, which is male and female. Thus, he would stand that homosexuality is a sin, just as all and any kind of sexual behavior outside of male-female marriage is sinful. Now, some may be listening and ask, why is the Bible so restrictive about sexuality? Why should a brief, pleasurable encounter be such a serious matter? Well, simply put, this is God's design. We're creatures. He's the creator. We flourish when we live according to his design. This is God's sovereign and glorious intention. We do not craft the rules. We do not craft the laws. We do not craft the designs. Instead, we are to trust the good and faithful covenant Lord in all his designs, and he's revealed those to us. What a gift. The region our culture has become so unrestrictive about sexuality is because there's no concern for God's design. There's no belief that there's ultimate authority and that there could be good ultimate authority. Thus, sex is being embraced by our world outside of its design, and the result is destructive damage to human flourishing and an assault on the glory and the intent of our God who made this world and gave the good gift of sex and marriage. We live in a day where sex is no longer seen as good, but seen as God. Good things make terrible gods. They are never meant to be worshipped. Research from 2010 and 2016 showed this to show the, the godlike worship of sex in our current moment. The pornographic industry outperforms every major league sport in revenue. Worldwide pornography revenues were $100 billion annually. That is more than the combined revenues of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix. When sex is unhinged from biblical ordinance, purpose, and picture that God intends in a covenant-differentiated marriage, here's what happens. Human beings become either a vehicle or an obstacle to my needs and my pleasure. And thus we should not be surprised by the rise of sexual abuse in our day. Having seen that dark picture, statement one ends with realism and redemption. Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires. Nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. And that's really important. All sex within marriage is not sinless. It too can be sinful, particularly when it is not an expression of oneness and intimacy. But the statement goes on to say, we all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not an unpardonable sin. There's no sin so small it does not deserve damnation. No sin so big it cannot be forgiven. There's hope and forgiveness. For all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. 
Now, throughout this entire study of the 12 statements, we'll be talking much further about the realism of remaining sin, sinful desires, progressive sanctification, mortification, repentance, all big terms. And if you don't know what they mean, stay tuned. We'll help you understand. I want to emphasize one sentence of this closing nevertheless statement. We all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. That's a fantastic sentence. The Confession says in Westminster Confession of Faith 6.5, During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, Yet both this corruption of nature and all its expressions are in fact really sin. But with this bad news, there's good news. There's no sin so small it does not deserve damnation and no sin so big it cannot be forgiven. Each of us in the church, in this confusing, sad moment related to sexuality, we must all embrace these simultaneous truths. We are all sexual sinners, and there is always hope for God's forgiveness and transformative redemption. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Pillar and Ground. We look forward to further study together of these 12 statements.